and welcome to episode 41 of the officially unofficial Daft Leopard podcast, Daft Leopard Pod. Today we continue our celebration of 40 years of the classic album Pyromania. And joining me again for part two of our Pyromania review are Paul Burns and Kurt Taft. Paul, part one was a two-hour epic, the longest episode of Death Left Pod ever. Have you got anything left in the tank for side two? Too much left in the tank. And Kurt, is there any particular song from side two that you're looking forward to discussing today? Probably one of the best kept secrets in Lep's catalogue, and then a track that I'm ashamed to how long it took me to fully appreciate. So yes. Well, he hasn't actually said what they're called. I love it. Tease. Keep keep them wanting more. All right. I love it. Right. So we're gonna go to the opening question. You'll be glad to know both of you that there isn't and I'm glad that there isn't 40 opening questions today uh, as well. It's just one opening question. A little bit of preamble as usual, and it's the same question to both of you. So Although we're only halfway through actually reviewing the album, it's safe to say that we've already concluded that Pyromania is, and to quote Paul Burns from part one, wall-to-wall bangers. So there's definitely no need to talk about taking anything off this album or swapping anything around. However, is there anything from Def Leppard's catalogue that you could add to Pyromania? which A, would sound like it should be on Pyromania, and B, would actually improve the album in any way. Cass, what do you think? If I were to pick an existing song that I think could fit perfectly on there, I would maybe choose like Wings of an Angel. I think that borrows a lot of Pyromania stuff, but it mixes it with slang, so there's a little bit that may not fit. So if I think back to maybe some of the unused ideas from the early days, you know, the band was already reworking stuff from the on through the night and high and dry era with songs. We got like rock, rock and photograph and too late. So I think it would have been interesting to have heard what something like war child would have turned into if they had reworked that. Cause I think it has a great, really heavy riff, but perhaps it would have turned into something a little too close to Billy's got a gun. So then mm-hmm. it kind of shifts over to something like, uh, Beyond the Temple or See the Lights. I think those two old demos had that pop sensibility that started to really flourish on Pyromania. So if those things would have been kind of touched up and thrown on there, I know we're not supposed to take anything off, but at the expense of action, not words, I wouldn't have minded. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, those last couple of ideas that they kind of left untouched may have turned into interesting songs. Immediately, Kurt, I am giving you 100 Def Lab Anorak points for throwing in a Beyond the Temple. Uh, <laughs> never, never, never mind, Sid Light. Beyond the Temple, that is a deep cut. That is that is one <laughs> deep cut. I'm impressed. Everybody go and um, use your, your capital search engine of choice to find out about that song. Paul, is there anything that you could add? Kurt said, Wings of an Angel. Excellent choice, by the way. Paul, what are you thinking, if any at all? Yeah, the only thing that leaps to mind is the fact that uh, Good Morning Freedom hadn't made an album. Uh, but, you know, by this point, it had been left off the first album. I don't think it was ever under consideration for the second. You could have found good r- room for Good Morning Freedom on here, I think. Uh, but apart from that, I'm minded to... Th- uh, in the booklet for the deluxe version of Hysteria, there's a story told about how... Uh, I think Joe describes the band as that they were not go- they're not God's gift to jamming. In any way, they they know their own songs. They work so hard on their own songs. So it's arguable that around this period, anything else they had tried to throw on here would have ended up sounding a little bit 
shaky by kind of if you, if you take Joe's point to its uh, to its to its natural endpoint there. So yeah, Good Morning Freedom because it was still on the shelf at this point. That's about what I could make an argument for. Okay, so we've come up with some ideas, right? You've got your appetite wetted. So we talked about songs that aren't on Pyromania, but in a in a um, in a theoretical world that they could be. Let's now talk about the songs that are on side two of Pyromania. So we're going to start off with Foolin. Okay, and that's written by Mutt, it's written by Steve, and it's written by Joe. Now, Foolin is as much a staple of Def Leppard's set list as songs that were like, you know, bigger hits, you know, like Pour Some Sugar On Me, Photograph, Hysteria, you know, Rock of Ages. So it still gets played today, Paul. What is the appeal of this song? I think it's best described. Have either of you ever seen the documentary Heavy, the story of metal, which is it's a VH1 documentary from about 20 years ago. Are either of you familiar with that? Is it mul- is it like a multi-part thing? Yes. Yeah, it, I think I know the one you mean. And the, the, really, I was going to say the host has got long hair, but that's okay. he's obviously going to have long hair. But I think I think I know the one you mean. It's really, really good. So, so it's a VH1 production. It's available on YouTube, and I'd encourage anyone to go and watch it because there is a Def Leppard uh, element to it. And in discussing Def Leppard, the focus is on Pyromania, the, the the album that breaks them. And there's a fella I think from White Lion, the band White Lion, and he says of Def, Le- Def Leppard's music in this documentary all of a sudden it was just so polished all of a sudden the verse is a hook the the bridge is a hook the chorus is a hook ah get these hooks out of me ah is what he said on the documentary <laughs> if ever there was a song that that applies to it's fooling this is possibly the most hook laden song in Def Leppard's catalogue I could argue uh, I you know it's got like it's got two separate bridges before you even get, or pre-choruses, as we say in the US. It's got two before you even get to that chorus. It's, yeah, it's hook-laden, earworm, pop rock candy. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we touched on this a little bit during the slang episodes where here we are, you know, eight to ten years before grunge peaks but this song has some of those grunge-esque kind of qualities to it with, you know, the emphasis on the quiet verse. And then it just, you know, go, goes balls to the wall, loud chorus. And that was very prominent in grunge. And yet here's Lep, you know, doing that on an album 10 years before that. It's funny because in the vault booklet which i guess you guys wouldn't really know since foolin wasn't on vault on your side mm. uh but phil says it was beautifully recorded and crap live which up to 1995 mm. i tend to agree with that i kind of feel like they were either playing it way too fast or way too slow but i think something kind of clicked with it on the slang tour to where they finally got the tempo right when playing it live and that's when the song kind of sprang to life for me um, and the bridge, especially there's something about the guitars when they played the song live where they sound better to me on the live version than the album version, great as it is. Although I will say 
as much as I love Foolin' and absolutely agree how hook-laden and catchy it is, I think that's the song on the album I kind of have the most fatigue with for some reason. Um, so <laughs> looking back at you know my stats of how many times I've played these songs over the last 10 years on my phone, it's in eighth place out of 10 for Pyromania. So that kind of shows, you know, again, that fatigue. And that also translates to the live set. I really wish Too Late would come in to replace this more often than it does. I've got kind of an, an, another thing on this. So I, I am not fatigued by fooling. I, I, I absolutely take the point, but I I absolutely love this song. And I think part of the reason I love this song, because it wasn't included on the UK version of Vault. This felt very brand new to me. When I, if anyone who's listened previously knows that Vault's the first album, Def Leppard album I ever got hold of. So this was very, very new to me and was just such an astonishing treat, if you like. Uh, I was in New Zealand in 2004 in a place called Fitianga for any New Zealanders listening. And it was uh, met a bunch of Canadian guys who uh, were rifling through each other's CDs and they had their copy of Vault on them. So immediately I said, right, get that on straight away. Let's have your copy of Vault on. And of course, was pouring over the fact that, hey, the track listing is different. You've got fooling, whereas we didn't. That might even have been the first time I was made aware of that. It, Well, I'll tell you what, just, just maybe a slight segue. It was released as a single in the US, right? It didn't get a UK single release. Neil, I don't know whether that's a decent bridge when talking about single releases, to jump back to something that was mentioned on the previous episode, which is to do with a single that was released in Mexico. And I believe, well, a little bird tells me that you might be able to shed some light on why Rock Rock was released in Mexico. All right. Okay. That was a lovely segue that you've just done there. Um, so for anyone who hasn't listened to part one, it's just Paul raised the question that he had seen that there was Rock Rock was released as a single in Mexico and it was how many seconds shorter did you say it was? Seven seconds. There was a seven second shorter. It's been edited. Okay. And so Paul put a, a plea out to the listeners of the Flat Pod to see if anybody, and particularly um, Johnny, uh, could work out and find out you know, what the score was with it. Well, Johnny went and did it. He actually spoke or contacted uh, like a radio DJ in Mexico and the person in this room now as we all sit here in the same room in our Def Leppard uniforms okay right was Kurt and he was talking about misprints weren't you Kurt in the last episode and sometimes these things just simply aren't right it is a misprint the seven seconds is wrong however it is shorter than the original but by less than seven seconds and there is actually an early fade in there and therefore, you don't hear the too loud, man, too loud. It actually goes out before that. Marvellous. Yoni, thank you so much for that. Um, just so what one, just coming back to uh, to something Kurt said on fooling. You were talking, Kurt, about the uh, Phil saying that it was not very good live, basically, until such time as they actually clicked with it. I've got... A, a general life point I want to make on on this album, and I think this is as good a time as any to make it because on fooling, it's this is going to sound really silly. It's one of my favourite songs to sing along to in the Def Leppard canon because it's got Joe's. I love Joe's mid range. I think Joe's mid range, especially now, he's he's just he's got he's got his voice sounds like liquid treacle to me in his mid range. I think he sounds fabulous, and you get that in the verses in the quiet part of of this song before obviously we then get to the screeching 
high notes, which brings us back to in episode one, we were talking about how amazing Joe sounds on this record. I personally am not a massive fan of how Joe expresses those high notes these days on stage. And I know there's been a bit of a clamour in to sort of say, do Pyromania front to back in the same way they did with Hysteria in 2018 and when they did the residency, do Pyromania front to back. I think Pyromania front to back represents a ridiculous vocal challenge for any singer, frankly, but I think it presents a particular challenge to Joe at this stage of his career. And Fooling is one that I will point to and say, it's the reason why you won't find me clamouring to hear a front-to-back Pyromania live show. I just think it's too challenging. Sorry if that's sacrilege. Right, we'll go on to the next song. I was tempted then. I was like, when do we talk about the Pyromania videos? Should we do it on Fooling? But Rock of Ages will be the last song that has a video. So when we talk about Rock of Ages, I do want to touch on the video for Rock of Ages and Fooling uh, when, when talking about it. But we'll come to videos last in terms of the songs. Right, so Rock of Ages is the second track on side two. It's also the second single that's released. It's written by Steve, Joe and Mutt. Rather than asking your opinion on anything to begin with, I'll just an open question. Does anyone know how the song got its title? Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories in all of Lip's entire discography. Essentially, one, you know, they had kind of been working this song without any real lyrics or title or anything, just kind of a general nonsensical. That's my best impression of Joe doing his, you know, fill in. And uh, they had a, a choir that was going to come into the studio one night the uh the owner of the studio kind of asked if they could lend it out for a night so this choir could come in and do some recording so lep called it an early night came back in the next day and they're in the control room they had a couple hymn books and one of them just happened to be open to the hymn rock of ages rock of ages The rest is history. Joe just kind of said, that's it. This fits. He suggested to Mutt. Mutt loved it. And that became the title. And, you know, it's just one of those perfect stories in rock where you have this, the song would have never been the same without that title. So it was just one of those meant to be things. I don't know about you, Kurt, but the idea of Rock of Ages existing without any words, lyrics, or melody, and it just being the music, sounds like the strangest piece of music I could imagine, because it's, it's so sparse and empty, isn't it? Yeah, even with the lyrics, on the, the Let Vault, Joe calls it a weird song, and I agree. It's like you, you have these vocals over the drums, and there's no guitars, but then guitars come in when there's no vocals. The song doesn't have a second chorus. I mean, to have a rock song and have so much empty guitarless space is a really risky move. And yet mm. the song is 
perfect. I mean, it's catchy, it's heavy, it translates extremely well live. It's one of my favorite, it might be my favorite closing song for a set list, which, you know, it's kind of been demoted to second to last for the last 10 years now. But yeah, I mean, I love it. And I remember I had a very short church going career um, as a, a young Padawan, but Oh man, that was an early reference there. But anyway, um, I remember seeing Rock of Ages in the hymn books when I would be sitting there trying not to fall asleep. And I didn't know that that's, you know, where the title came from. Like, how do they have this in there when Def Leppard, like in my mind, there couldn't be two songs with the same name. So it broke my brain seeing that, that in there. <laughs> well, we've discussed Rock of Ages before, I think briefly in a previous episode. And I do remember you saying that, you know, you liked it, but it wasn't a song that massively resonated with you certainly compared to other songs from pyromania and other songs that were on vault which was your entry point into death leopard that's probably about two years since we've had that conversation anything changed since then i made the point in the first episode of pyromania uh, last week or two weeks ago that i do love every song on this album i think what's important with rock of ages for me i i, I actually think rock of ages is perhaps the most overrated song in the def leppard canon uh, its status in the live set is something that would maybe maybe feeds into my opinion there um because but for me it is a live song so kind of at odds with what I've just said, actually, about fooling. But I, I'm not a massive fan of the recorded version of Rock of Ages. I think it's a significantly different song when you see it live, especially. It's a, it's a real blood pumper of a song when you see it live. And that that's kind of where I am on, on Rock of Ages. Um, I did want to go back and have a little look. We're going to do U- British UK chart quizzing again, chaps. Because it's worth having a look at what the British public thought of this song and neil you alluded to this in episode one rock of ages peaked on the british chart on the 3rd of september 1983 it peaked at number 41 and we'll come back to the significance of the 41 in a second so first of all 40 tracks better than it at number one i'm going to give you the title you two see if you can give me the artist title okay. red red wine oh no you be 40 yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Number one on the 3rd of September, uh, 1983. Now, number 40. The reason 40, by the way, Kurt, is important because the British chart broadcast the top 40 every Sunday afternoon into the into evening. So if you got into the top 40, you had a hit because you were guaranteed radio play. If you missed the top 40, you weren't getting the radio play. So Rock of Ages misses a really significant milestone by one place on the british chart it misses it to a cover of a song so i'm going to tell you that at number 40 i'm going to give you the uh the name of the song and you're going to tell me who it was by originally so the song is called riders on the storm the doors Oz. it is the doors this though is a cover of riders on the storm by a lady named annabelle lamb she on the charts with something called The Flame, which and she would never be seen or heard from ever again. <laughs> so that's what Def Leppard missed the top 40 by. That is actually quietly quite significant for UK. A top 40 hit at this point would potentially have been quite a big deal for them.
one thing I wish they would bring back. And I think the last time I saw them do this was 1992, is the whole crowd participation in the middle of Rock of Ages. Wouldn't it be great to see all of that again? Could totally agree. Could completely in agreement over that. The whole I want rock and roll bit, basically, with a sort of call and response kind of thing going on. Uh, yeah, completely agree with it. Um, just a, another couple of little bits whilst we're still talking about Rock of Ages here. One of the kind of most exciting Def Leppard-related things that ever happened in my life was being around at a friend's house circa, I can't remember exactly what year this is, um, but hearing and then Pretty Fight for a White Guy starting on MTV and going, hold on a minute, this this band that are scoring this hit have just sampled Def Leppard. That was a really, really exciting thing to hear. Am I alone in geeking out on that? Because it really, really thrilled me at the time. Definitely not. I was in, I think, sixth grade when that song came out. And so, you know, by 98, Lep wasn't much of a, a topic <laughs> for people my age. You know, of course, I was way younger than Lep's general fan base at that point anyway. But, you know, no one knew that. So this song comes out and all of a sudden everybody that's around me knows this pretty fly for a white guy song. And I'm like that. They they stole that. It it made me mad at the time. So I had a different reaction. <laughs> I was like, "That's not yeah. theirs." I didn't understand what sampling was. I'm like, "What? They can just take what they?" Yeah, it was. Uh... But then you know, over time, I I grew to appreciate what they were doing. And speaking of understanding, did did you do you have any notion of what Gunter Glieber Glautengloben is said to mean? I think there was some uh, supposed translation of like running through the for as silently or softly or something i think it's just gibberish but it's funny <laughs> yeah r- running through the forest silently is the <laughs> is the joke answer that the uh, the band have tended to give on this there's Kurt, i know i think you're going to mention it the the new dolby uh surround sound whatever the, the the name of the technology is that's been applied to this new mix of pyromania i've heard people say a lot that on that new mix, I've not listened to it yet. I've not had the facility or the time to do it yet. But on that, you pick up lots and lots of things that people have never really previously picked up. I made a real effort when listening to this track in preparation for this episode to try and pick out where the um, so-called backmasking is in this. You know, uh, uh, apparently Joe says backwards at some point in this i think it's brezhnev has herpes which is a very cold war related reference if you listen if i version about two minutes 54 that's where i think you can hear those backward vocals in the original mix you've really got to have your ear keenly attuned to listen for them because they're they're really not very clear. Is this something of you two? Did you have you two ever noticed that backwards stuff in Rock of Ages before? So Rock of Ages, I have, and I think part of it is if you go poking around YouTube, you can actually find a lot of the individual pieces of the song completely isolated, and I believe that stems from when it was included on either a Guitar Hero or a Rock Band game, because basically you can kind of go in there and pull all those individual tracks out. And that's where I first started to hear, you know, Joe saying, suck it. And you know, <laughs> all that kind of funny little stuff that's uh, 
hidden in there him saying you know what i'm talking about during the first part of the song before it even gets going there's a ton of stuff that's hidden in there which is funny to not be able to hear it during such a sparse song what do you want uh, you betcha i hit it Ta-ta-ta. suck it so yeah i agree i think it's around that middle point kind of i think that's in the solo kind of the final bit of the solo where it's kind of played backwards in there um i didn't notice that part particularly clear during the Dolby Atmos mix, and I'll kind of get into that a little bit more. Some of the other stuff you can definitely hear. But yeah, if you want to hear any of that stuff clear as day, highlighted with nothing around it, just poke around on YouTube for the individual tracks of any specific part of the song, and you'll be able to hear it clear as day. We don't need to talk about each video in length, not least it might not it might have been a while since you watched the Historia video. So quite simply, Paul, Photograph has a video. Rock of Ages has a video. Foolin has a video. They're all directed by Dave Mallett. They're all very similar. Not least that Joe always seems to be tied up to something. Um, right. My, my question is, and I'll come to you first, Kurt, which is the craziest video out of all of these three? Well, if they had put the the horse bit into the Foolin video, since Joe apparently spent a whole day riding a horse, I think that would have taken the cake. Um, I guess... I don't know. It depends on what your preference is. If you like close-ups on, you know, Phil shaking his ass, then Rock of Ages might be for you. If you like a lot of tied-up women in cages, Photograph might be for you. They they all feel very much of the era, but they're also, you know, less embarrassing than some of the other things that came out of the era. I'd rather watch these three videos than anything Dio did at the time. But uh, yeah, of the strangest ones, I would probably give it to Fool and just because of Joe walking around with the sword and no, that was no. He's just walking down the hallway, and there's explosions going off, and he's getting his arm hair burned off, things like that. Man, I must admit, the bit where he's on like the top of a skyscraper—I mean, I think it's supposed to be a skyscraper. It doesn't look like that. It's only when you start looking at all the background, and you, then you think, "Oh, I think this is actually supposed to look like a cityscape." And he's at the top of a skyscraper, and the top of that skyscraper is like a skull guitar, and he's tied to that. Um, that that. I mean, I love it. I'll be honest with you. That's, that's fantastic. <laughs> what about you, Paul? I'm going to be honest. I'll, I'll kind of plead the fifth slightly because I am not the best person to talk to about music videos for the simple reason that uh, this is going to sound so wanky. Music for me has always been a listening experience. I, I really don't have an interest in watching musical videos. I just never, ever have. So I, but I'd always just turn it off and put the record on. I'd rather listen and have the imagination take me away kind of thing. I suppose it's like the version of you'd rather read the book than watch the film. I'd rather listen to the music than watch the video. So I, on that 
score, I will plead the fifth, but I'll make one little point about the photograph video, which is I find it toe-curlingly embarrassing because of the dreadful miming that they're doing. You know, they're, they're rocking out in a photograph. And of course, you can tell these people are playing to nothing. Uh, they're not particularly good actors, certainly at this point. So I will make that point on the photograph video. But yeah, mu- music for me always been a listening thing rather than a looking thing. Moving on to the next song. The next song is Coming Under Fire, written by Mutt. This has got Pete Willis writing credits in it, Steve Clark and Joe Elliott. Coming under fire. Paul, what's this song about? Sex. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's clearly another song about sex. Uh, just lay down with me is come to bed with me, obviously. Uh, there's a callback, I think, slightly to stage right here with the, it's so easy to put on a show. Your body says yes, but you won't let it go. She's, she's holding out on him again, exactly like we got at the start of stage fright. And if you're so inclined uh, the the line coming like thunder, if you're so inclined. This is the one I would have I would consider one of Lep's best kept secrets for it to be, you know, apparently never played live and just kind of forgotten about. Um, supposedly, it made it onto the mainstream rock chart here in the U.S. at number twenty four. So I guess it had you know some attention at the time, but since then it's you know you have your five songs that are fairly regular in the set list and then two others that kind of come in and out a little bit for three, depending on how you look at it. And then you have coming under fire and action, not words that are just kind of forgotten. And of the two coming under fire is a top notch song. Although I'm not much like Paul doesn't pay much attention to videos. I don't pay that close of attention to lyrics and, you know, try to interpret what they mean. Having heard him talk about it, I just have to be extra glad that Lep did not go the Tesla route by spelling come in with a U. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> really glad they at least were a little bit more subtle. But uh, uh, it is interesting that if you go on the, the Lep Fault and watch the track by track video about this, the vast majority about it is the band talking about it how it's not been played live and what it would be like if they did play it live. So clearly there's an awareness to it even though they've never done it although it's hilarious that it's mentioned or noted as being the only lep track in general has never been played live i mean if somebody out there had to sit and watch gravity be played live then i do feel sorry for them but um after paul i'm gonna again kind of go in the face of what you were talking about earlier um after viva hysteria in 2013 there started to be talk of a follow-up residency for pyromania and of course, at the time, I was most excited to get a chance to finally hear Stage Fright after missing it by as little as one day. Um, it shows I had seen, and of course, Die Hard the Hunter and Billy's Got a Gun, which those two I've since been blessed to see. So now I still hold out a hope at a chance to see a Pyromania residency. I do think it's something they would have to start the show with, do these 10 songs first while he's going to be coming in freshest, although... I'm a little bit conflicted on that because sometimes it takes him a couple songs to kind of get warmed up. So maybe stick it in the middle. I don't know. That's a whole other discussion. But if there were to be a Pyromania residency now, I'd still place Stage Fright as number one of the song that I want to hear. But 
I think Coming Under Fire would end up being the overall highlight of them actually playing the album in full. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. I love it. I th- there's uh, ACDC released an album in 1983 called Flick of the Switch, which is a massively underrated, in my opinion, ACDC album. I love it. It's a bit Def Leppard-esque, that album, in that it relies on quite anthemic choruses and it is very hooky as well. So this song, Coming Under Fire, could easily exist on Flick of the Switch by ACDC, in my opinion. I, In, in trying to dig a little further and... and think of because because coming under fire is a hidden gem if you like there's not a lot out there to be said about it as per sort of what kurt was saying you know the band themselves just talk about how it's not been played live they didn't really dig into the song itself too much and a website that purports to sort of analyze songs and it returns scores for songs on key metrics one of the metrics that it returns a result on is danceability. So out of 100, rates coming under fire, 62. So I thought maybe we could have just a quick game of play your cards right. Now, Kurt, I'm not going to explain what play your cards right is, British game show, because it's going to become very, very apparent what it is. Neil, danceability, 62 for coming under Hysteria, higher or lower than 62 for danceability? I don't think coming under fire is danceable at all. I think you could probably dance in a romantic way um, to hysteria. I'm going to go higher hysteria. Correct. 68. Kurt, higher or lower than hysteria? Photograph. Um, I'm going to go, I'm just going to guess lower because I think with hysteria, when they filmed the video, they had to like speed it up or slow it down or something to make the, the dancers be able to dance to it. So I'm going to just... Uh, Throw caution to the wind and say lower. You're right. Four. Uh, just another couple of these. Uh, Neil, back to you. Rock of Ages, higher or lower than 44? Higher, definitely. Correct. 64. Finally, pour some sugar on me. Higher or lower than 64? Ooh. Higher. Surely higher. And as per what Neil's suggesting there, it's lower. They they marked it as 50. I know. So, <laughs> so I'm glad I've wasted all your time on what's clearly complete and total bollocks. But yeah, pour some sugar on me. 50. Less danceable than hysteria. That, that's almost as bad as UB40 with red, red wine, which is a dirty <laughs> song. I guess all those strippers in Florida picked the wrong song, huh? <laughs> the, the shit website is saying that the strippers were wrong. Ah, <laughs> uh, bloody hell. Right, I know who I believe. So next up, we've got Action Not Words, written by Joe, Mutt and Steve, like many of these songs on the second side. But generally, okay, Action Not Words is perceived to be the weakest song on the album. Paul, is there any argument to be made that it's not? I don't think so. I think it is the weakest song on the album. I still think it's absolutely brilliant. It's This is one thing that Pyromania has over Hysteria. Hysteria is my favourite record of all time. But Hysteria's got a bad track on it. It's got Excitable on it. 
this is not a bad track. Actually, everyone is shaking his head at me there, by the way. Uh, this is not a bad track. It's another one that's filthy. So sorry to do this to you, Kurt. This is, uh, I'm sure everyone's picked out that this is about making a So years before... About make, about, you dropped out then. About making a what? Making a sex tape. Is it? <laughs> many years. It's before, very subtle. Many, yeah, many years before Pam and Tommy popularized the genre. The Def Leppard was singing about it, and it begs a question. In 1983, what equipment did you need to record a sex tape? Because imagine how big the was, how long it must have taken to set the tripod up, or whatever it is that uh, that's going on. So yeah, there's um, it's another lyric on this album that's filthy neil's actually reading the lyrics by the way listeners I, I i can't believe this is coming as news to you neil absolutely is right this was the first ever song i was able to sing as a Def Leppard fan from <laughs> back to beginning as a child i was sick and tired of the down tv because it you know it, it resonated for me i thought uh okay what bits of it or it being like like a sex tape it's a late i can't night. see that you and me in a late night show. We're going to make our own movie. Show me action, not words. <laughs> it's. I don't think you have to dig too too deep into this. Although, what it must just be like a, a a kung fu film or something. You know, <laughs> after the watershed, be violent, not necessarily. No, Neil. If that's what you need this to be, then yes, absolutely. You 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 go with it. Uh, of the lyrics, by the way, this has got one of my favourite indecipherable Def Leppard lyrics in it. I, for years, had no idea what the hell he's saying when he says, I'll be your Bogart and you'll be Monroe, yeah. I'll be your Bogart and you'll be Monroe, yeah. It, because he, he, he sort of says it in a... He basically just makes a few sort of syllable, vowel-y sort of sounds. It's a virtually indecipherable lyric. Um, but yeah, I mean, listen, listeners, come back. Am I wrong? Is this... Kurt, am I wrong? Is this not about making a sex tape? No, it is. And now that we've really spelled that out on here that question from the last episode of what would i play for my wedding if i were to do that again and i called out this song now if there was any question about it i'm going to be in trouble with the wife so i'm really glad we took the deep dive but yeah i mean it it's <laughs> hilarious to me you know the, these lyrics and i know i said i don't pay much attention but even i picked up on okay i get what this is about <laughs> so it is funny to think of it you know in that era like you know to have a sex tape made you have a friend standing in the room cranking you know the old camera like <laughs> just seems like a lot of work but as far as its place on the album for me it is an easy pick for my least favorite but it is still a very song or strong song which again speaks to the overall quality of the album um joe says it was them trying to sound like the rolling stones without any success and that even played into his vocal delivery which may have played into making some of those strange lyrics you don't have humphrey bogart name checked in rock songs that often and then you throw some Mick Jagger twang on it and it makes it that much more indecipherable and then you have Steve playing slide guitar on the intro to this thing which would have been probably the first time they ever had slide guitar on that probably well until into the Vivian era maybe you know I can't think of the next song it may have been outside of recent stuff on Diamond Star Halos but uh, I mean the this song supposedly was played just a single time live. Uh, apparently they did it at their first headline show in Odessa, Texas on the uh, Paramania tour. And it went down so poorly that it never made it past that. But 
I would still welcome it back. Viv says he'd like to play it if they did the album. I'll see anything live one time. I don't care what it is. Right here, right now. I'm not quoting Van Halen. The lyrics shock me. Very, very appropriate. Okay, yeah, because I am shocked. I'm genuinely, but I am reading it now. It does say bump. It does say shock me, bump and grind in it. So <laughs> I've missed that. I don't know what I've, I thought. Maybe that was like you know, ran like a quad bike over mud hills or something. You know, I don't, I don't know. Oh, I don't know if I'll ever be able to look at that song in the same light again. This seems to be happening a lot in this podcast. Um, for me and Kurt intermittently, but Paul's over it all the time, every time. <laughs> <laughs> he's got his radar on okay right do not fucking tell me Billy's got a gun it's about prostitutes and sex Paul okay because I right it's got to be about something else right Billy's got a gun the last track on Pyromania <laughs> Clark, Savage, Willis, Elliot, and Lang. Okay, so this closes side two in the same way that Die Hard the Hunter closes out side one. Kurt, does this match the heights of the closing of side one with Die Hard the Hunter? I don't think it necessarily matches the heights, but I think it winds it down perfectly. I think... Die Hard is like that epic thing that's going to kick up the energy level before it kind of resets things before you move on to side two, whereas Billy's got a gun, slows it down, it makes it dark and heavy, and it's like, all right, this is it. We've done all of our stuff with the pop stuff, the heavy stuff, the fast stuff, the slow stuff. Now we're going to give you something that's entirely unique. I think it's one of the most unique songs in the entire band catalog for the band. It's got this unusual tempo to it. It's got a non-standard song structure because you've got your verses and your chorus kind of but you've got these multiple extra vocal breaks multiple guitar solos it's just meanders all over the place and this is the song that i am ashamed to say it took me way too long to fully appreciate because it wasn't until i got pyromania on cd that you know i would let it play through and and listen to this song because before I would just kind of focus on the first seven and then my interest would drop off after that. So uh, I did also get to see it live finally in 2019 during the residency. It was an obvious highlight and I was watching the vault vid uh, for this. And according to Vivian, they were supposedly rehearsing this song for the Adrenalized tour, but it didn't end up getting played that year. But I'm not 100% sure how accurate that is because his recollection of when he's played what is a little bit spotty within that very same video um, series. I think he said that Die Hard the Hunter, he hadn't played with them until the residency, but he did play it once in 1992. Granted, it was his first show and then never again, you know, until 2019. So I understand forgetting that. But um, he also did suggest that he hadn't played Billy's Got a Gun until the 2019 residency but this is a song that the band has kind of revisited from time to time it was played early on the slang tour it was played a couple more times when they did special little club shows on that tour um, then it came back a single time in 2002 in Japan and then it came into their consideration again in 2005 uh, for the Rock of Ages tour they were flirting with the idea of having 
this one spot in the set that would be a rotating spot for epic songs like Paper Sun, Gods of War, White Lightning, Billy's Got a Gun. But they ended up kind of ditching that idea. Gods of War became the permanent song. So the fact that this one has kind of seen the light of day kind of shows how much the band loves the song. It still isn't featured nearly enough, but just the fact that, you know, it finally did get, I think it was only played four times out of the 11 shows during the residency, but it made it onto the live album. That's all I care about. And see the block in this song for people. And you just said there, Kirst, that, you know, it took you, you know, like, you know, a number of years before you like fully appreciated it. And I think it's because of the way the song starts. Like you said, that rhythm is really unusual. The riff is quite unusual. Um, I think the musical term is it's quite discordant. It's almost like it's put together to sort of just rate with you a little bit or like not sit right. And I think that can set up what you think the rest of the song sounds like. I actually think that once that bit ends and then you go into the verse, it's then immensely accessible, like really, really accessible. And I think it's just that open and bit. I mean, Paul... Did you do a dance check on this? Because surely the danceability on this must be the lowest of all Death Leopard songs because it's just <laughs> such a, a weird rhythm, isn't it? After the pour some sugar on me, Dave Barkle, I'd, I'd shut the window on that particular website. I love the way this starts. For I've, I've, I've been sat here thinking about it. I'm thinking I've had to confront quite a few contradictions within myself when doing these two podcasts because the, the drum intro to this is really cool really really cool another thing they do action not words finishes and it immediately comes in i've got this ridiculous ridiculous criticism of the last two albums which is that i don't think songs are given enough time to breathe they finish and the new the next one comes in like a quarter of a second later the album is just mixed just run and run and run so quick so constant on this occasion it works perfectly Action Not Words finishes and that drum thing comes in straight away. It's awesome. This song is layered in keyboards, tons of keyboards through, especially through the can you feel it in the air bit. You asked right at the start of this, Neil, what this song is about. And no, it's not about sex and prostitutes. However, I think there's at least one occasion where Joe says it's about Peter Mensch and it's on one of the live recordings. I wonder whether you can... uh, uh, fact check me on this Kurt is it on the, the the Love Bike single had a live version from Tilburg on it is that the one where he introduces this as being about Peter Mensch yes yeah I, I know that because Love Bike that's the very 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 first record I ever bought in my life uh, so I, I know that inside out I think it's just a joke though isn't it he goes this was a, a naughty little boy called Peter Mensch well, I, I absolutely love this song. I just, I, it's what one of my favorite um, Def Leppard songs. What I would say with this song is, it's not prog rock, not remotely. It's not progressive in in that way. But the way in which this does remind me of a prog rock song, and I don't think there's many Def Leppard songs that do this. Is when you listen to the lyrics, I think this is the best story in any Def Leppard song where, you know, you can read it through. You need the music to go with it to get the sense of the story. But if you read it through, it's got the best, you know, it's got the best narrative. He's running around with his gun. The gun goes off. We don't know exactly um, how or where. It's a bit ambiguous. And then, he, you know, he legs it um, to use a, coll- a colloquial um, phrase. So it's a very simple story, but nonetheless, it's got a three-part structure. It's a story. But what I think is really, really good 
is I think they make a real effort in this song to make sure that what is happening in the music is ha- is reflecting what's happening in the story and the lyrics. And I think more than any other Def Leppard song I can think of, it's got that prog rock type of thing where there's you know there is a narrative, there is a story, and the music is telling the story as much as the lyrics are, and the things purposely go together. And especially in the the back quarter uh, of um, this song where like the crowd are gathering around and everything i would i would genuinely genuinely say to everyone go and listen to this song and really listen to the lyrics and really listen to what the music's doing at the same time and it's absolutely brilliant i was gonna say form and content just in perfect harmony i completely agree neil i think it's a great point yeah i definitely agree too and i think we also have to credit joe's vocal on it because the very beginning of it he's very Billy's got a gun, you know, by that, by that last chorus, he's screaming everything out and there's this urgency there. So it builds through the whole song and it's just the attention to detail is amazing. In a moment, we're going to pick one song from side two to go on the Def Leppard Ultimate Def Leppard playlist. But before that, we'll just make a short return to my chat with Michael Citro, where we discuss the likelihood of a pyromania residency at any point, and also hear his choice from side two. Def Leppard did a Vegas residency in 2013, where they played Hysteria from beginning to end. And then they were able to replicate that, not as a residency, but as a tour in the UK. And I think they did it in Japan as well. And where they went round and they played Hysteria in its entirety, both times that was massively, massively successful in, in both countries or both areas. My view is that I don't think in the UK pyromania residency would be that attractive other than to diehard Def Leppard fans. I don't think it would pull in those extra people to maybe like fill arenas. You could you could do it in theatres and things, and, and there'd be plenty of Def Leppard fans, but you wouldn't be able to do it at the same scale. If Def Leppard were to do a pyromania residency in Vegas, for example, in the States, would that be popular, do you think? Do you think that would be as popular as an Hysteria residency? I think it would be very popular. Obviously, Hysteria was a bigger album for them, so I think it wouldn't be as popular, but I think it would still do very, very well. I can't imagine in a place like Vegas that they wouldn't be selling out every night. Um, because even with a pyromania residency, you're still going to get, in addition to the whole album, you're still going to get some of the other hits throughout their career. And I think that that would be enough to, to satisfy all the Def Leppard fans here, because you're still going to probably get your, your pour some sugar on me and your animal and your hysteria and, uh, you know, some of the other hits throughout their, their career, you're bringing on the heartbreak maybe. And uh, so I think, yeah, it would do very, very well and maybe not quite, sell out as quickly as the hysteria ones but uh mm. yeah i think they would they would they would certainly not be hurting financially afterwards and i'm going to get you into episode 41 of Def Lap pod as well when we do pyromania part two and in that i'm going to be asking them what song they would pick from side two so i'm going to ask you for your choice for that but i will give you a little reminder of what's on side two i don't expect you to remember all of this stuff off the top of your head so on side two of pyromania we've got fooling Oh, he's got it in front of him. Always prepared, Michael. I shouldn't be surprised. Okay, so we've got Foolin', 
We've got Rock of Ages. We've got Coming Under Fire. We've got Action Not Words. And we've got Billy's Got Gun. Billy's Got Gun. Billy's Got A Gun even. So if you were to choose one song from that side to go on the Def Leppard Ultimate Def Leppard playlist, what one would you choose and why? Well, side two is a little more difficult because I th- I think of those songs almost all at the same level. But I'm going to say Foolin'. I, th- I like the way that it, it sort of has a little bit more variation to it. Um, it was, again, it was one of the early hits here. It was one of the early videos from the album. And I think that for me, it's, you know, it's a very good melodic hard rock song that that just again just one of those songs i never ever get tired of it's been around since 1983 and and it still sounds as fresh to my ears as it as it ever did so i would say foolin and if i were to pick a backup i'm gonna go with billy's got a gun and we're back and kurt paul let's pick our side two choice i can confirm that michael's choice from side two was fooling so paul will come to you first what is your choice from side two and why it's also fooling and i could only repeat what i said earlier i think this is the most hook laden song in the Def leopard catalog and given Def leopard are famous for writing hook laden songs it's an automatic pick for me I sense, given what Kurt said, that maybe for the first time we might be about to come to some blows. <laughs> I also think that I am looking at the the twinkle in Kurt's eye here, and it's a twinkle that says, "No, Paul, no." Uh, so before I come to Kurt, what just so we can um, smooth the possible lane of negotiation and compromise and build bridges and um, cross divides, Paul, what would your second choice be? Billy's got a gun. Okay, right, Kurt. If you'd asked me in the 95 to 98 period, I would have conceded on fooling. Now, again, as much as I love it, I'm not you know, giving shade to the song. My number one pick would be Billy's Got a Gun. And that's just because I, again, just feel it's one of the most unique songs in the entire discography. And if I was trying to make a playlist and show as many sides to Lep as I could. Billy's Got a Gun doesn't really have a comparable song to it, whereas to me, Foolin' and Too Late are a little bit similar. So, yeah, I would choose Billy first. And I would also choose Billy's Got a Gun. So that means it's two all. So therefore, I'm going to use my casting votes, and very rarely do I um, run a draconian regime and overrule the contributors that come on to Def Leppard. However, I am in this case. And we are going to go for Billy's Got a Gun. And I would say is because our side one song is Photograph. So we've already got a bit a big single. I just feel, for no other reason than I just feel, that we should have maybe a deeper album track, something a bit more epic. Plus, you know, as mentioned, what a song. What a song. I think it's miles better than Fooler. So, um so it was too old, but I'm going to use my chairman's extra vote. I'm going to be John Lennon. I'm going to have seven votes. You can all have one each or whatever it is. And I'm, I'm, I'm calling on my inner John Lennon um, without all of the bad stuff. And um, yeah, we're going to go for Billy's Got It. <laughs> That's the song to go on it. Right then. Okay. I believe, Kurt, right, that there is some sort of Dolby Atmos 
special wizard version that has just come out of Pyromania. I have not heard it. I am unable to access it, but I believe you've had a little listen to it. Uh, Can you just tell us a little bit exactly what it is, where you can get it, and does it make Pyromania sound any better? Yeah, so first, I have to preface this by saying I'm by no means an expert with Dolby Atmos. Um, The Pyromania one is the first one that I've listened to. The only other album that I've tried to listen to through this Dolby Atmos type mix is Impera by Ghost. But I felt that the Ghost album had far fewer noticeable differences than Pyromania. But I also have to say, I've only been listening on your standard Apple earbuds. And I think you kind of get more of an experience out of it if you have kind of the high-end AirPod Pro things, all that kind of stuff that I don't put money into because I have a toddler. So uh, as far as Pyromania goes, one of the things that we kind of kicked off our discussion with last week was Rock Rock Till You Drop and those keyboards in the beginning. And when I started this album in the Dolby Atmos mix, those keyboards were the first thing I noticed. They're much more prominent. And that is something that features throughout the entirety of Pyromania is any song that has keyboards, you're going to notice them more than what you did before. You're going to notice parts that you didn't know were there. And there's one song in particular that becomes an entirely different beast because of those keyboards. So I'll string you along with that. But um, there are some negatives in my own personal opinion on this too um one of the things that paul had touched on before was that the long process of the tapes kind of losing some of the quality of the album but making it sound a little bit more raw and keeping some of the rock edge i think that's actually lost on the dolby atmos mix it has much more of a pop sheen to it so that could be a pro or a con depending on your own personal taste but because everything is kind of split out and the vocals, the backing vocals in particular, have a little bit more of a clarity to them, it strips back how crunchy some of the guitars are. So, you know, that's another thing. The backing vocals, sometimes they're more prominent. Sometimes they sound more like separate voices rather than just this wall of sound. Um one area where you can really hear that and it, have it be a highlight is the first bit of too late for love when there's no drums or anything underneath of it. And those backing vocals come in. It sounds amazing in your ears. One of the weirdest things on the Dolby Atmos mix, and this may be an error by the person that was doing the mixes, because I believe you have to take all the original tracks and kind of build this from the ground up to get this mix is Joe's. I got to have you line that features in the second and third bridge for photograph. They stuck that into the first bridge. And the first time I heard it, I was kind of sitting there and listening as I was working on something and I had to stop and go back. I'm like, did I just hear what I thought I heard? So that first bridge, they stuck the extra vocal line in there and it bugs the shit out of me. (laughs) And I can't imagine any other let fan not being bothered by it unless you're not as, you know, crazy as uh, I am. But yeah, the fact that that extra vocal line is there, I'm like, how, how did that wind up there? It's very off putting, but um, there are some uh, other vocal things that I didn't know existed. There's, and it's nothing really important, but there's just these little, yeah, and that kind of stuff. There was one in rock, rock till you drop that I noticed that I had no idea was there right near the end. Um, There's one or two of them in Billy's got a gun. Um, Joe's vocal 
his lead vocal throughout the entirety of the album has a clarity to it. You're really going to hear the power in his voice. And especially when you get into the last bridge and chorus on Die Hard the Hunter, it's like he's standing right next to you singing into your ear hole. I mean, it's clear as day. The drums are the same. The drums throughout the entirety of this thing are so loud and in your face that maybe if you're on the fence about how much of it's programmed and how much of it's not, you know, listen to this mix because you're going to be able to hear those drums as clear as day. Um, Except there's a part where Too Late for Love is fading out and it sounds like drums are missing. It sounds like there's parts where the snare drum's not there but it's on the fade out. So it makes me want to go back to what I've been listening to for, you know, decades now and be like, is, is it always been like that? Or is that just something that's missing from this mix? All right. So for um, this mix, if you're going to choose one song as the absolute highlight of the Dolby Atmos rock of ages. So if you're unsure of what you want to hear, if you don't want to bother with the whole album, skip ahead to rock of ages because it is the absolute highlight of this mix. I mentioned before the drums are, you know, magnified and highlighted clear as day that the backing vocals, same thing, but the keyboards during this song in particular, especially in the verses are pretty insane. I mean, it just fills your, you know, headphones, ear pods. If you have the high end ones, I can only imagine how much better even sounds just compared to, you know, me on my basic ones. But, and then same thing with Joe's vocal, because we have so much clarity with no guitar parts under his vocal, it's all so loud. You have those keyboards behind him instead. So every single little bit of Rock of Ages is magnified. And this is where I think it shines the most. So kind of, if I were to put it into some pros and cons, the pros of this are the clarity on the lead vocals, uh, the clarity on the drums. One thing I kind of didn't mention, but is a highlight is the bass. I feel like that's more prominent in a lot of these songs too. Some of the cons, your ears can kind of struggle to adjust to what it sounds like because it's not what you're used to hearing after 40 years. And that's going off of your original vinyl, cassette, CD, the remastered version, all that. You know, your ears are trained to remember it in a specific way. And this completely turns that on its head in some spots. Um, there are some areas where the backing vocals aren't as strong. I think by having them a little more sheeny and separated, they aren't the big gang vocals that they normally sound like. There are some parts where guitar parts are a little bit buried. The outro solo on Photograph is almost non-existent in my earbuds. And again, maybe that would uh, you know sound better on a better system, like a 5.1 surround sound system or better you know headphones. Um, and that extra line in vocal in, in photograph is off putting enough for me to put that into the cons list, but it, I definitely think it's worth a listen. So if you have access to Apple music, I think if you haven't used it before, you might be able to sign up for like a free month. That's what I did so that I could go and listen to it is I just signed up for a two month trial. Didn't require you know me to put in anything. Well, I think it does require a credit card, but it doesn't charge you if you cancel it before it expires. And I think some of the other services might have it on there too, like title. I don't think it's on Spotify. But uh, yeah, poke around is definitely worth a listen. Thanks, Kurt. And going then from 
one version of Pyromania to another special version of Pyromania. So a few years ago, we got a a deluxe release of Pyromania. The main thing that you get in the deluxe Pyromania is you get Death Lab Live at the LA Forum 1983 when obviously they're on the pyromania tour so we're going to make this like the last thing that we touch on we're not going to go song by song because you know there's a lot there's a lot of songs on there so paul what are your pyromania related highlights from pyromania deluxe and in particular you know the live at the la forum show yeah there's one immediate which is stage fright on there which is absolutely fantastic it's i'm just trying to check where it's played it's played it's the last song before they come back out for uh for an encore of traveling band on which brian may also plays so that is my pyromania highlight I've, i do have to say that my highlight of the whole show is wasted i think the performance of wasted on this is absolutely amazing we touched very briefly on this disc Neil, when we did the Oxford show, because we 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 raised the question, which do we prefer? Do we prefer the Oxford show or do we prefer this LA Forum show? And I just about prefer this LA Forum show. J- just an overall thing for people. If you've if you've not heard it, if you didn't end up getting the deluxe edition of Pyromania, go and listen to this. It's absolutely phenomenal. They are completely brilliant. It's an amazing performance. It's a hell of a set list. It's a beautifully curated set list as well. It's you couldn't alter this track listing and the order it's played in. It's it's perfect. It's as good a live album as any band has ever done. I'm putting this up there with Live After Death. And for those people who are so inclined, Alive by Kiss. Uh, Again, if you're so inclined to call that a live album. But uh, I honestly think it's one of the best live albums ever. And it just appeared on this deluxe edition of Pyromania. Awesome. I think overall, my favorite on this is probably another hit and run. Um, Mm. But as far as the Pyromania tracks, I agree. I think Stage Fright is the song that, I mean, it's just it's already a fast song and then knock that up a couple notches it you know it's just pretty crazy and to be thrown there just at the end yeah and of course you know that's part of why it's my number one wish list song to see live which they wouldn't be near that fast today but yeah that's of all the pyromania songs that's my highlight and i think it's because some of the other ones i don't think sound quite as good live i think they kind of struggled with the translation from something that was so put together piecemeal for the first time in their career and then turning that over into a live performance, which of course they've perfected since then. But this was the first tour where they really had to make that translation. This show uh, has been in band circulation for years. Um, I think in Animal Instinct and then in the deluxe edition, David Frick mentions having a copy of this on cassette. And then of course, at some point it leaked out because a you know unofficial version of this has been floating around for quite a while and i think i got my hands on the unofficial version in about 2000 uh, which is longer than what we have on the deluxe edition it's not it's not quite as clear because of course it wasn't mastered for official release even though it sounds like it could have been um it's just not quite as clean but it's not like they did overdubs or anything like that but honestly it's crazy to me that this sat around for so long without being released and especially Mm -hmm. after rick's accident it seemed like a prime thing to throw out in 1985 just to buy them some time and i feel like if it had it would have one of those reputations as being one of the great live albums i think it's great that it came out when it did but it's a shame that it didn't come out when the band was at the peak because 
this would have easily gone multi-platinum and been widely regarded because who knows how many fans out there have no idea this thing even exists. Yeah, exactly. So if you don't know it exists, then obviously you can still get the Pyromania Deluxe. You can get it for like quite cheap. I don't know how much it is in the States, but you can pick it up for about £6 here in, in the UK, which is less than $6, certainly. And then it's it's also there just on all of the streaming services. If you you look at the Pyromania Deluxe, it'll, it'll have all of this on it. So definitely go and check it out. Right, we come to the closing stages of our absolute epic and I am going to say probably unchallenged in the podcast world that anyone's done anywhere near as much on um, Pyromania and in the detail that we have. You two fellas have been absolutely excellent. Just to say, it's just been such an incredible pleasure. Thanks so much again for inviting me on. I've loved it. No, no worries. And Kurt, safe to say with your eight versions, you're a fan of um, this this album. Um, any closing thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, this is it's my second favorite album of all time. I do think Hysteria may have been a greater achievement, but this album for me, because it has that extra heaviness, it kind of gives it the edge over Hysteria. Um, it's a, a genre-defining album. It's one of those albums that changed the musical landscape when it came out. Um, as much as Steve's work is fantastic on Hysteria, I think this is maybe the peak for steve clark just because this is kind of a more riff driven album than hysteria was for me so yeah i mean i i don't think this album as much as it does have accolades i think it deserves more um and of course being overshadowed by hysteria will play into that but it's perfect all things considered 10 tracks no filler top to bottom fantastic Effect all things considered. What an end. Right, everyone, thank you very much for listening. Paul, care, thanks again for your time, and I'll see you again soon.